Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. If you would like a transcript of this episode, or indeed any earlier episode, please email me at fergal at the sustainabilityagenda.com. I'm very pleased today to welcome Frederic Ash to the Sustainability Agenda. Frederic is co-founder and executive director of Green Finance Observatory, an independent NGO that analyzes the new market mechanisms and sustainable finance frameworks in order to determine how likely they are to meet the stated environmental, economic and social objectives. Prior to this, Frederic worked at NGO Finance, where he managed the policy analysis team and analyzed European prudential regulation of banks and capital markets. Thank you very much, Frederic, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My pleasure. It's, uh, I'm very happy to be invited. Excellent. Well, um, uh, it's on everyone's mind at the moment, and we're getting very close to D-Day with COP26. So uh, I, I'm looking forward to talking to you about that, getting your distinct perspective on it. Um, but maybe just before we start, if you can tell listeners a little bit about the work that you do and your background. Right. Uh, well, my background originally is in financial markets and investment banking. Um, I worked for 12 years um, designing and selling currency derivatives. And I've quit that career 10 years ago now. And now I, I had this uh, small think tank or NGO who focuses on the new uh, market-based solutions applied to environmental policies. So that goes from carbon markets to the forthcoming uh, biodiversity offset markets and natural capital to sustainable finance. And so really what we do is we analyze all the new uh, legislative proposals, whether at EU or international UN level, and to see if these proposals of the design of these markets um, is such that they can do what they claim to do. Excellent. Really important work you're doing. Now, um, what's on your mind most at the moment? Uh, clearly, uh, many crises, environmental, climate, and others. Um, what keeps you awake? Uh, three things keep me awake right now. Uh, there is climate change and the appalling agenda of the COP26. Um, there is the CBD COP15 and the forthcoming financialization of biodiversity destruction. And there is the new fluffy, allegedly inclusive and beyond gross metrics that are being pushed forward in many countries, such as the UK. Right. Um, can you maybe just talk a little bit more about each of those, just to, set, to give us a little bit more context, Frederic? Sure. Uh, well, when it comes to the COP26, uh, I find that the, the agenda does not have much for the climate. It has a lot for um competitive the competitiveness and economic growth of developed countries for the finance sector but um, still diverged the conversation away from the need to curb emission in our opinion uh, now but the two other topics uh 2021 was year zero for um biodiversity upsetting and this is comparable to 15 years ago, uh, what happened in, with carbon, you know, when we created the first carbon markets that have been a quite spectacular uh, environmental failure. And yet we are creating uh, more of these markets right now and are about to see uh, similar markets for um, ecosystem services, uh, both at international and EU level. And that is extremely worrying because it has already been shown from, I mean, there's been tremendous amounts of research showing that uh, these markets cannot work. In fact, for all the talk about putting a price on nature, that is not what is actually being done because it cannot be done. If you look at the nuts and bolts of these markets, uh, what is being measured is a few uh, arbitrarily selected ecosystem services while the rest is willfully ignored for simplicity purposes. Okay, we can go into that, and that's an important part of I know your your work uh, thinking in that, um, and that's tremendously important. The third uh, issue on your mind you mentioned was to do with uh, growth metrics. I think. 
Post allegedly post growth metrics, yes, such as the inclusive wealth metric that is being um, now official part of the UK government policy. And that is um, produce capital plus natural capital plus human capital. And so, you know, this is framed as something that is inclusive and sustainable. And yet, this is arguably a very neoliberal matrix that, um, you know, will contribute to financialize and further privatize not only nature, but human life. And there's a lot of questions that need to be asked about this. And there's an urgent need for an informed public debate on these topics in our view. Very interesting. And hopefully we get to dig into that a little bit more. So um, uh, COP26, uh, can you just talk a little bit about that? Um, what, what were your expectations? You've seen COPs come and go. Um, you've been thinking about what a, what a good COP would look like as distinct from a bad COP. Um, can you maybe just talk about that? Well, very simply, um, you know, based on IPCC findings and recommendations, we know that our remaining carbon budget uh, runs at around five and a half years to have a, a, the best chance of limiting global warming to around 1.5 degrees, right? Uh, so what that entails is fairly clear, right? That means... That doesn't mean that we can continue as usual for another five and a half years. What that means is that we should use uh, our current consumption, you know, for the next five and a half years based on our current lifestyle and spread it out over the next hundred years, which is the approximate residence time of carbon in the atmosphere. So that would require a drastic change. But unfortunately, that is not what is foreseen uh, at the COP26 agenda. And in fact, um, a lot of the, the focus this year is on finance, right? Uh, among other things, one of the things that is um, the primary focus of this COP is to finalize a new carbon offset market linked to Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. And one of the key negotiation points regarding this market is about how much cheating to allow, i.e., are we able to reuse the same credits once or twice? Right. Before we go into the details, can you explain what the carbon offset market actually is, the intention of the carbon offset market? And just give a general view of what your sense of the, the role of carbon offsets. Um, I think Mark Carney has gone, been on the record as saying that he, it'll be a hundred billion dollar a year market or something by 2050. Um, uh, a lot of mobilization around this. Yes, uh, there will certainly be a very profitable market for financiers, but it's not so clear that it will benefit the climate. Uh, offsetting, by definition, is about uh, doing some action, uh, such as, I don't know, um, planting some trees, generally in a low-income country where land is cheap, and claiming that it compensates for your emission. Right, when but we fact, just stop for a second. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that would be a bad offset, but just the concept itself has a certain merit, doesn't it? In the sense that you could say that, you know, obviously we need to reduce emissions uh, completely uh, over a particular time frame. But um, it is very interesting you say that because offsetting by definition, whether good or bad, is not about curbing emission and is not also about sequestering past emissions, which are the two things that are necessary for climate change mitigation. I mean, by definition, Offsetting is about enabling future emissions by claiming to offset them. So offsetting has nothing to do with climate change mitigation. Offsetting has everything to do about enabling future emissions to, in order to maintain economic growth, but nothing to do with climate change mitigation. Well, well let's say you're a company that uh, wants to be a good company and you want to reduce your emissions and you can reduce them. Uh, there, there's some things you can do. Some things will take longer. And you think in the meantime, uh, there are things I can do. I could, I, we, could, we, we could somehow reduce the carbon emissions from particular industrial processes. We could, you know, in principle, uh, regenerate, uh, grow forests and, and so forth. Um, w w what's wrong with that as an idea? Many things. But, okay, to start with... Um... Generally, okay, first at the first level, I don't think this is a role of companies to do that. 
And saying that companies want to contribute is not neutral politically because it does not happen in a vacuum. The same companies that are pushing for it are typically lobbying against binding regulations uh, that would mandate phasing out of fossil fuels. Okay, so, so I will separate. There's, there's two issues here. One is the concept, I suppose, the idea. And you, I, I guess you're saying you can't take it out of a particular political context. And the other is how these are actually manifest in practice. And the, the, the analysis of carbon offset markets shows that um, there's a race to the bottom. The standards are very poor. It's hard to find actually good uh, examples of, of genuine offsets. But in terms of an idea, just look at it purely as an idea. And if you've got a good actor, a company that does want to do good, but recognizes it can't overnight and in a couple of years, you know, completely transform <laughs> itself, you know, that, 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 that uh, carbon offset, some kinds of carbon offsets could I would uh, strongly dispute that view because, again, at an individual company level, um, you know, there is a trade-off um, in their net zero plans between curbing emissions and offsetting. And the, the reason and, and where they draw the line is not based on the fact that it takes longer, it's based on what affects your bottom line. I mean, let's be real and honest about it. So, again, offsetting comes... I mean, for all the talk about offsetting coming in addition to curbing emission, unfortunately, it is never backed by a credible binding measure. And as we know, talk is cheap. Isn't this one of the issues that uh, people are discussing at the moment and uh, negotiating? You know, when is it okay to uh, carbon offset? Uh, you know, if you have done everything you can and there are ways presumably of getting a good sense of that to actually reduce your emissions, um, you know, I guess they've got the hard to decarbonize sectors and things like that, that you could envisage measures which would say, listen, you've taken these three key steps, you are making very good progress on these measures, but yet that's not enough. But, I mean, on paper, I would agree with you, but that's never the reality on the ground and never the political reality. It never comes like that. It's always instead of, because let's face it, I mean, offsetting is incredibly ineffective, but also incredibly cheaper than curbing emissions. And so it has been demonstrated beyond any reasonable doubt that it delays and weakens a climate action because it replaces curbing emissions. And the elephant in the room in all this debate is the need for degrowth that is never mentioned. And in this respect, offsetting plays a crucial role to divert the conversation away from um, curbing emissions and degrowth. And if you really, if we were really serious about addressing it, one first step would be to no longer ever mention net zero because net zero, by definition, puts on an equal footing um, curbing emissions and offsetting, and therefore implicitly favors the cheaper, which is offsetting. Now, if we would disclose separately and have separate targets for curbing emissions and offsetting, then governments could no longer hide their uh, voluntary or involuntary failure to curb emissions behind ever-increasing, ever-more-ambitious offsetting targets. But this is not the case, and that is not what is being proposed. This question of the carbon offset market, the the uh, the markets themselves, the rules for uh, pricing and trading carbon and so forth, this is uh, at the heart of the, the of COP twenty six as well. It's it's essential. It might not get as much attention, but um, can you talk a little bit about uh, what what's happening there? Because sure. the, the negotiations are ongoing, um, and what what do you think of it all? Well, I mean, this has been a crucial point for the last two COPs. And this is, in fact, one of the remaining points from the Paris Agreement to be finalized, right? Um, basically, there used to be a market you know, linked to the Kyoto Protocol, in fact, two market mechanisms called the Clean Development Mechanism and the Joint Implementation that have been carbon offset, international carbon offsets markets that have spectacularly failed to curb emissions over the past 15 years. And these markets have expired. So now the goal is to replace them with the new carbon offset market that would be called the Sustainable Development Mechanism. And that would enable countries to um, claim to offset their way out of curbing their emissions once more 
Um, this market has not been finalized yet because some countries such as Brazil are pushing for the double counting of the credits. And there are other ongoing issues about the legacy credits of the earlier mechanism. For example, some countries have huge stock of past uh, Kyoto credits that they don't want to uh, write off. So basically, that is very interesting because from a climate perspective, we're discussing the creation of another market mechanism in the face of an appalling track record, knowing also that the mechanism by itself uh, weakens climate action compared to curbing emission. And the, the negotiation points are about really financial matters, you know, how much cheating to allow, how much legacy failed credits to allow. So there's not much in it for the climate and for the population. I mean, there's a lot in it for the governments who want to prioritize growth over uh, climate action. Uh, and there's a lot riding on for the financial sector. But I mean, looking at the agenda of this COP, it's not clear that and even the best possible outcome would do much to address climate change. Yes, and this whole question of offsetting uh, and markets um, is is something that's been on your radar for some time. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about you know so-called market-based approaches? Uh, presumably, there you know we, we live in a capitalist system. Uh, however long it or whatever your goals change it are and over what time frame there, there's room for some kind of market-based mechanism or you know market approaches uh, companies respond to price signals and so forth um what's your sense of the, the 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 lay of the land at the moment with respect to these ideas we're seeing uh, much more government intervention in various different ways uh uh, coming out of the COVID uh, crisis, but also in America with Biden and so forth. Um, does this mean that we're, we're moving away from, from market-based solutions and, and looking for more? Uh, the, the word which <laughs> nobody likes to talk about, I guess, which is a regulation. Uh, regulation, is that an alternative to, to market-based uh, approaches? A little bit of an overview of, of what you see going on in terms of market-based approaches, what they really look like and, and the mm -hmm. momentum there. Well, historically, if you remember, and the first of this market-based solution was the sulfur dioxide market in the U.S. And the reason it came to being was that uh, Republicans, um, under Reagan, if I'm correct, uh, were opposed to any regulation that would curb uh, profits, private profits. And so markets were presented as a way to reconcile um, neoliberal Republicans and uh, environmentalists. When in fact, um, these markets have never delivered. I mean, the sulfur dioxide work, but for carbon, they never delivered. But politically, and somebody used this formula that I find really, really a good one. They said, okay, these carbon markets have been both an environmental failure and a political success because you can claim that they will work once the price is right, which um, never materialized over the past uh, 15 years. And even today, you said it worked in the in the sulfur dioxide case. The sulfur dioxide uh, worked. Uh, it's the only example, in fact, of a successful market, but it was on a much smaller scale with different rules, etc. Uh, now, the market-based solutions are gaining ground politically. I mean, we're moving away, ever further away from uh, binding regulation that would mandate us to curb our emissions to be clear. And that's also the case uh, under uh, the Biden administration. John Kerry is a huge uh, fan of market-based solution. Uh, so no, no, these are gaining ground. We will see ever more market, and that's probably because uh, most of the governments currently still prioritize economic growth maximization. I mean, both are linked. Yes, yes. Because uh, just to, to, to move on to the topic, which I suppose coming out of the Paris Agreement, should really be at the heart of this, the question of, you know, what countries, their commitment, what countries ratcheting up their plans and their commitments to uh, reduce emissions. That surely should be a highlight of, of, of you know, a, a major uh, plank of this whole thing. What's happening there? Well, it should be. Uh, but unfortunately, the other big focus, as you know, is this 100 uh, what, billion dollars uh, to developing countries, allegedly to help them, but given the terms of the loans and the fact that these are loans and not gifts, 
um, this can be, be viewed under a very different lens. And in fact, this is very interesting because if you look at what's happening on the, on the, on the big picture, I mean, there is this new form of green uh, carbon colonialism, if you will, whereby uh, um, European governments do everything they can to um, avoid uh, curbing their emission and changing their way of life. Um, and then so, sort of outsourcing that to developing countries by buying land, planting trees, and opening a new market for global foreign investors in the process. So this is very problematic and has many impacts, not only on an environmental perspective, but also on a social and geopolitical perspective. Because if you look, for example, at all the global commitments in terms of upsetting and the uh, quantity of available land that is required to make these commitments, and we're talking the size of a continent, and obviously there is no such area that is inhabited currently. So, I mean, the, the, the big picture story here is really about um, developed countries uh, fighting tooth and nail to not change their way of life and trying to um, claim to use uh, developing countries and to claim that they will do the job for us if we pay them and um, rebranding that as help, um, you know, helping them to deal with climate change. Very interesting indeed. Let's take a brief break to hear about an organization we support. Client Earth is an environmental law charity with a unique approach using the law to create powerful change that protects life on Earth. To meet the global challenges facing our planet, Client Earth used the power of the law to change systems for lasting change, informing, implementing and enforcing law and advising decision makers. Client Earth believes that a future in which people and planet thrive together isn't just possible, it's essential. And now we're back to today's episode. Now, nature-based solutions are very in vogue. Yes. Can you talk about this? What's your perspective on nature-based solutions? Well, it's not a perspective. I mean, nature-based solutions describe a range of interesting and good activities, right? Um, such as, for example, uh, using forest or uh, wetlands for flood prevention against soil erosion, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, the the issue uh, is that this term has been co-opted by the proponents of biodiversity of setting. And here, it's important to to make one remark. First of all, uh, biodiversity of setting is infinitely worse than carbon offsetting, because as much as you have only six greenhouse gases, you have millions of species and interdependencies between species, etc. So we're really, truly unable to modelize it. And we do not have the scientific knowledge. In fact, we do not even know all the species, etc. So this is really, I mean, from a, an academic or scientific perspective, not serious work, right? But it's, it's a kind of, it's a, con- it's a contradiction in itself, presumably, because, you know, the biodiversity is ecologically dependent in a particular context and the idea that you could somehow substitute what's happening in one particular location i mean it's it's not even logical it's it, it doesn't hold water and and, and 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 you're absolutely right about that and it goes even further because the type of biodiversity of setting that is currently being promoted um at un and eu level is an extreme form whereby you can destroy one type of species or habitat and replace it with another species or habitat in a whole different country. So for example, let's say you're a company and you want to build an airport in the south of Spain around over the flamingo habitat. Well, under what is being promoted currently, you could pay some developer to restore a habitat for bats in Greece and claim you have compensated. When, of course, we know that uh, more bats do not equal less flamingos. But so the point about nature-based solution, and here again, another distinction is very important. So the activities of restoration are good, right? I mean, to be clear, restoration is a good thing to the extent that it comes in addition to curbing destruction. The issue is that increasingly, these restoration schemes are expected to be financed through the granting of biodiversity offset credits which doesn't make sense from an environmental perspective because if you fund your restorations through the granting of permits to destroy more elsewhere, 
well, you're not really addressing the issue, right? Uh, and so that's from an environmental perspective, you know that it's kind of doomed to fail. And then from a social and geopolitical perspective, you have the same issues that you had for carbon offsetting, namely a huge risk of uh, land grabbing in low-income countries and human rights abuse. So nature-based solutions, the term has been really captured by the proponents of, um, of biodiversity offsetting in, together with natural climate solutions, uh, the other alternative names are ecosystem-based approaches, etc., uh, and that is really problematic. And it, the, when I say biodiversity offsetting is a huge part of nature-based solution, this is not an opinion, to be clear. This is stated black on white in the 2020 IUCN Global Standard for Nature-Based Solution, and also the European Commission has written black on white uh, twice that biodiversity offsetting is part of nature-based solution. So now this term is, is used increasingly instead of offsetting, because offsetting is not a very popular term. It's a term, in fact, that has disappeared from any legislative proposal or media article. So, yeah, no, um, it, 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 it's, it's very interesting that this question of, uh, you know, biodiversity that you're talking about. Um, I, I've spoken on, the, on this podcast about the Descriptor Report, uh, you know, where, where they basically set out the, the, the logic, which is that, you know, biodiversity is an is a, is a, is a asset management problem. Um, yes, which is, you know, uh, <laughs> absolutely which, wrong. You know, um, now, uh, so underlying these ideas, this, this idea of ecosystem services um, and natural capital, how deep and embedded is this uh, thinking, uh, the momentum uh, there, you, you talked about some, some of the multilateral organizations that are, you know, uh, behind this, that are involved in this, including, and I, I know uh, Daniela Gabor's work on this, uh, it, you know, the, 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 the World Bank and, and, and various, you know, multilateral financial institutions. So w w what's driving this? How, how big a move would you say this is? Right. So this is something that has been in the works on the drawing board for more than a decade. With indeed, as you mentioned, the World Bank, uh, the OECD and the European Commission and the UN CBD as well uh, as the forefront of the promotion of these solutions. Um, this, is, this is now gigantic. I mean, because natural capital accounting, which is the alleged attempt at putting a monetary value on nature, is now officially part of um, the EU policy. For example, the European Commission has published the value of the you know, EU's nature this year. And you'll be very happy to know that it stands at um, 234 billion euros. Now, what's the problem with that? There's a logic to it. There's a set idea that if it's, it, you know, if something's not valued, well, then it's not being, you know, looked after. If we put a value on it, people will pay more attention to it and, and look after it. There's, you know, that, I suppose some people would say that there's a logic to that. True, except it's it's not the case. Uh, first of all, uh, I mean, if you look historically our, our policy making, right? You don't need to put a price on something to 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 care about it. I um, mean, you don't need to put a price on terrorist attacks or national security or fighting tsunamis um, to to address it, right? We're talking policy choices. We're not talking budgeting. So that's a fairly inaccurate a comparison. And then secondly, there's a major difference between measuring in physical terms, which is necessary to assess, for example, the state of the ecosystems, and measuring in monetary terms, which is based on really totally debunked and biased methodologies. I mean, do you know that one of the main methodologies to put a value on nature is surveys? So for example, you will be asked, how much are you willing to pay for the Grand Canyon to still exist next year? And the average of the answers will provide the value for the Grand Canyon. Fantastic, except it's not grounded in anything scientific at all. So the other problem is that what is being measured, like I said earlier in their models, is only a tiny fraction of the ecosystem services and of the interdependencies simply because there is not the ability to model everything and because there is not the scientific knowledge to, to measure everything. So this value is an incredibly partial view of nature, not even of nature, it's not even a proxy, if you will. So this figure does not mean anything. I mean, if you, if you add the fact that you take some ecosystem services and ignore the others 
And then you add this hugely debunked valuation methodologies, the, the, the resulting figures are really meaningless. And then even assuming that these figures would mean something, what do you do about them? Like in the case of Europe, right? We said 240 billion euros. So does, that, does the fact of knowing that figure help you protect EU biodiversity or does it facilitate its destruction? To, give, to put this figure in context, this figure represents roughly one month of revenue of the um, worldwide oil and gas sector. I would say that 230 million is incredibly cheap. Billion, billion. You considering mean. we cannot live without. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, I, putting it the other way around, I suppose, looking at it from the, uh, well, certain people frame it in this way, we need eye-popping sums of money. We need trillions of dollars to decarbonize, to make these transitions to these changes. We need, we need finance and we need to bring on board banks, large corporations, they, and, and and therefore this is this is the way to do it. It's to to uh, include them, to give them uh, to have, so, have some kind of financial measures uh, mm-hmm. and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about the the, the idea that the, the kind of sums of money that are being bandied around, that are, are being you know that have been prepared and analysed in various fora and and, and in certain contexts, all 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 agreed, you know, uh, huge sums of money, right. So first of all, um, that is not true. I mean, and it's, it's, I mean, see, you, I mean, you can see for yourself. I mean, curbing biodiversity destruction by itself does not cost anything, right? Uh, you just pass a law who mandates to curb biodiversity destruction. It does not require public funding. It does not require fiscal space. Look at what we did with the Montreal Protocol uh, with CFC gases, right? Look at what we did for asbestos. It didn't cost us a penny. Right. So, no, curbing uh, biodiversity destruction does not cost anything. Of course, because our economy is built on transforming natural resources, i.e. it is built on destroying nature. So if we really were serious about curbing it, that would um, seriously make a big dent into GDP figures and economic profit, which is not the same thing as... um, you know, well-being and people's well-being and people um, purchasing power, etc. Uh, in fact, the, the GDP metrics has been shown to be decorrelated from people's um, well-being for at least a few decades. But so, no, it does not cost anything by itself. What does cost is uh, if you want to change some infrastructures, if you want to measure to mitigate the impact on economic growth. But by itself, there's no need for private finance. Thank you very much. Well, well, that's Uh, biodiversity, to be fair. I mean, if we want to move off fossil fuels, presumably there are significant sums of money required to develop renewable energy or all of the infrastructure around that and to move and decarbonize all kinds of things. That takes money. Okay, on carbon, well, uh, providing alternatives, yes, cost money. Curbing emissions by itself does not cost money. Again, huh? But and so, but that's that's the first level. At the second level, it's interesting because the conversation now is about how to incentivize economically corporations, as if governments no longer had the power to compel, right, to regulate. Yes, absolutely. And the fact that this regulation is even absent from the conversation tells you that if I were to sum it up with a formula, I would say Davos has won. And that's really bad because, you know, whatever the policy choices that we end up collectively deciding, um, the most effective tools should not be out of the conversation from the outset, right? And looking at the track record of environmental regulations, um, they have been incredibly effective, whether for asbestos, for the hole in the ozone layer, et cetera, they have always been incredibly effective. So you're not a big you're not a big believer in voluntary uh, uh, markets and self regulation. <laughs> I come from financial markets, and uh, no, absolutely, uh, I'm not a believer at all in voluntary. What about uh, NGOs that are generally? I mean, is it IPBIS and and uh, uh, you know, uh, which isn't an, an NGO per se, but seems pretty supportive of natural capital. Uh, many of the largest NGOs in the world are uh, very involved in this. Right. So you need to understand that NGOs don't speak with one voice. You have the big uh, environment conservation NGOs who are traditionally uh, 
uh, co-opted and yes, supporting any sort of market-based mechanisms. But also uh, on the other end, you have all the, for example, NGOs focusing on indigenous rights who are totally opposed to that. And then uh, on the front of people opposed to these mechanisms, uh, you might need to add Tariq Fancy, you know, the ex um, sustainability expert for BlackRock. Yes. Which yes, is absolutely. allegedly the best expert in the world, if ever there was one. And who, just like all my former trader friends, couldn't, you know, said that this is a deadly distraction. This is not just bullshit and a waste of time. This is a deadly distraction. So, yes, I mean, you have a lot of NGOs who are paid to you know, to peddle this narrative because if they don't, they would access much less funding. You have a lot of, you know, everybody, but that doesn't make it right. I mean, if you just look at the fact that the track record of what has worked, what doesn't work, and if you, if you listen to experts, then, I mean, there's there's no debate. I mean, well, the, the reality is um, these mechanisms are here to avoid a discussion on uh, curbing, curbing destruction because that would entail a discussion on degrowth, which would entail a conversation about distributional issues and, you know, the sharing of the pie. So this uh, question, you you mentioned this before, uh, degrowth, and I've spoken to Jason Hickel a couple of times and Georges Callas, um, and I'd be interested to get your your, your take on it. Um, you think it's important? I, I, it's not that it's important or not. It's a, it's a imminent physical reality regardless of what we think and regardless of our policy choices. Like we're currently uh, in the you know, non-conventional oil peak, which means because growth is hugely correlated with uh, cheap fossil energy, that we will experience degrowth. It's not a question of if, but it's a question of when. Um, now, it's interesting because just before we were speaking, I was uh, in this conference and there's this hugely important academic paper that just came out about three uh, decades of uh, climate uh, mitigation, uh, why, what explains the failure. And it's an interdisciplinary paper that looks at it from different lenses, from climatologists, geologists, uh, sociologists, etc., economists, etc. And the overwhelming conclusion of this report, which doesn't really come as a surprise, is that this is not about a lack of awareness. This is not about a lack of solution. This is about the role of power and of vested interest. And that tells you all you need to know. And in fact, it corroborates everything I have witnessed in my uh, professional career. I mean, let me tell you two conversations I have had over the past four years that are really summing up the thinking at the highest level in the EU, right? I had the first conversation four years ago with the head of a lobby firm um, that I won't mention. It was off the record, but carbon markets at the ETS, so um, the EU cap and trade market. And the guy, he was the head of lobby lobby shop for one of the most polluting sectors. And he told me, look, and I'm quoting literally almost, he said, look, these markets were never meant to work. Uh, in fact, we thought... Uh, they would uh, die long ago, but the Paris Agreement saved them, and which was a happy surprise. In any event, we know that um, over the next decade, a big city like London will be underwater and they will be dropped overnight for a carbon tax on something else. But we're just buying time. So that's the view from the industry, from within the industry, right? The second conversation I had two years ago I had with the head of lobby firm and with the senior finance attaché of the perm rep of one of the biggest EU member states, right? And that was the conversation. I said, look, the way I understand it is that all the climate policies that are being put forward at EU level uh, rely on these doomed market-based solutions. And so the question is why, right? And these people are not stupid. So the way I understand it is that we're facing a choice. Well, there is no good option. It's easier we decide to truly address climate change. And that would most certainly cause uh, a recession. Or we decide not to address it, knowing full well that we're you know, continuing on a three plus degrees trajectories, which will entail um, hundreds of millions of climate migrants and billions of deaths over the next decades. And the way I understand it is we have chosen the latter option, but we just don't want to admit it. So we come up with this rather ineffective policy tools uh, to, to, 
And so, and, and what do you say? And, the, and they both agreed. And but more shockingly, they both agreed. Like I was saying something so obvious. I mean, it was not even worth discussing. And the second guy, and his response was so shocking that I remember it exactly. And he told me, "Look, there's, it's pointless to do anything about climate change in Europe. It would just uh, destroy our competitiveness and benefit the Chinese. In any event, we know that all the poor will die." And the good news is that it will rid us of Islam. Do you want another coffee? So that's the most cynical thinking I've ever heard in my life. But it's, it's ultimately, it's about vested interest and it's about power. And all these market-based solutions are, in my understanding, about diverting the conversation away from truly curbing emission and curbing destruction. And for the simple reason that any government who would do that would most certainly not be reelected. Uh, and they would challenge vested interest and it would force us to rethink deeply our way of life. Probably uh, a significant part of the population is not necessarily ready and willing to do that, but we're not even trying. Well, that's uh, very uh, scary and shocking. And, and yet, if you, I mean, go talk of the record to any senior institutional official or lobby person, and they will tell you exactly the same thing. I mean, and the sad part is this is really common knowledge. And, you know, there is this French philosopher who wrote brilliantly about it a few years ago called Bruno Latour. Yes. He wrote this brilliant essay about climate change called Where to Land, I think, in which he explains that, you know, the, just like the oil companies, the oil majors have known since the 70s uh, about climate change very clearly and then decided voluntarily to no longer research and disclose their findings, but um, focus on extracting frenetically fossil energy. Obviously, the governments have known likewise in the 70s, and so he formulated what he calls the um, hypothesis of the secession of the elites, saying that, you know, we were a bit like on the Titanic and the elites are... Um, um, the sustainable finance and green growth thing are the um, orchestra playing the lullabies while they're sinking shipping. And that's not me saying it, and that's one of the... Listen, listen, you identified, you know, I mean, these are wicked problems. They're complex. Not that complex politically, ultimately. You, you identified at least some of the constraints, you know, uh, uh, electorates, they're, you know, until recently mm -hmm. very, very divided, um, maybe changing uh, right now, um, more awareness due to extreme climate and so forth. But uh, electorates that, uh, you know, uh, aren't all on the same page on this. Governments which operate in, in very narrow uh, timeframes, vested interests, corporations which have their own uh, specific uh, agendas and, you know, their profit making and so forth. So, so what are a few things that you, you would recommend? What, what should we be doing? Frederick? Well, um, at the first level, I believe in, uh, you know, I'm a strong believer in democracy. So I believe uh, in informed public debates, which we are not having right now. Like no one knows what our nature-based solution, what they stand for. Uh, there is um, you know, this sort of linguistic warfare and absence of appropriate uh, media coverage of these topics, which is really sad. Um, the other thing is, I remember very well one sentence of, you know, uh, the former uh, president of the European Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, who said uh, famously, well, the only thing that can make me change my policies is one million people in the street. Um, and then if you identify the role of the core role of power dynamics as the main hurdle to addressing climate change, then, you know, uh, I'll let you uh, draw the conclusions uh, yourself. But I believe there's no silver bullet, no one solution. I mean, I strongly believe, you know, in the power of uh, information about raising awareness. I mean, how many people know that this COP is focused uh, primarily on finance this year? Uh, you know, not many. How many people know that one of the key negotiation points is how much cheating to allow, even less? Why don't they know that? Would it change the outcome if they knew that? You know. So well, I believe that. You know, yeah, it's it's one of those. It's a bit like an onion. You peel off a layer, and then below that, you've got people's values as well. You know, and 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 the attitudes to climate change and 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 so forth is also. Uh, at least in the United States, quite correlated also with attitudes to free markets and, you know, attitudes to liberty and, and big government and and uh, things like that. So there are, there are myriad uh, sets of uh, values, uh, ways of thinking about this 
uh, that that you know uh, need to coalesce somehow. But you know this democratic question, because you, you raise a whole other series of questions there, which is you know the role of the media, the entertainment complex, the social media, the way that's you know uh, yeah. polarizing. Um, but it's just introducing a whole other set of you know problems in a way, but not necessarily you know uh, guiding how to how to how to deal with the with these uh, uh, I, I, deep issues. I agree with you, and these are not simple issues, and I'm not offering any silver bullet. I wish we had an honest adult conversation about it in the first place, which we're not. You know, your work is very distinctive in this space. You know, uh, the research you do, the thinking, uh, the reports, uh, Daniela's work and so forth. What's it been like for you as an organization? Um, you know, I did a, a, a fascinating interview with Daniela. Um, and yet you sometimes feel, well, you know, you can have these discussions, deeply insightful, uh, very revealing. And then, uh, you know, things go on. Um. You know, I mean, well, as an organization, uh, we're in this kind of interesting position where our work is read at, um, you know, at a high enough level. But because our critical um, v- conclusions, we are uh, struggling uh, to get funded, obviously. I mean, you know, it's so, I mean, we know we'll get so much more funding if we would praise green growth and, um, you know, and sustainable finance. Uh, so this is, you know, this is complicated on a financial basis, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an important topic. And, you know, somebody has to look at the nuts and bolts of this market. And I don't see many people doing that, so which is why we decided to create it in the first place. Uh, and, and really, you know, again, b- being a strong believer in democracy, I, I respect the, the you know the, the decision of the people, the majority, whatever choice they make is fine by me. I wish they made an informed choice. You know, I wish we had a real adult conversation and not just the usual, you know, uh, diversion of conversation and linguistic warfare and use of fluffy, meaningless words, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So I, I would think that would contribute, and that's why we're trying to 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 participate in, if you will, at our very modest level. Do you feel that we're at a at, at a, a particular turning point in some way? Um, not necessarily that that uh, solutions are going to emerge, but it's on the uh, uh, public mind. It's on the uh, agenda uh, in, in the news more than it ever been. Um, you know, all of these commitments, you mentioned the problems with net zero, but all these commitments to net zero countries and 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 and, and companies and, and so forth. Where, where, where do you see that? That's, that's a pretty big move from where we were, you know, not too long ago, where there were still these debates on, you know, whether or not it was really happening or whether, you know, uh, you know, humans were responsible and so forth. So there's a lot of talk about crisis and indeed talk about emergency you know and an emergency framing of this you know we're in a climate emergency we've come out of uh we're, we're still in covid but you know we've had a covid emergency you know all the kind of things naomi klein talks about you know in emergencies appropriation of power um and so forth can you talk a little bit about those various topics um it's it's interesting it's interesting because you know on one level you know, it is true that at least in Europe, it's no longer most of most of the time it's no longer being possible to deny climate change. But the corollary of that and the consequence of that is that the the the, the proponents of the status quo have evolved in their rhetoric. You know, now they're just pitching uh, green growth instead of <laughs> pitching climate denialism. You know, it's just a consequence. Uh, and yes, we are at a very important moment in two respects. In one respect, I mean, we are seeing an increasing, an exponential financialization of nature like never before. Uh, As in, you know, carbon markets were niche dysfunctional markets for the past 15 years. And now we're we're talking about a new asset class on nature. That, and that would be integrated into mainstream capital markets. This is a huge game changer and a terrible one uh, from an environmental perspective. This is the victory of Davos from a political angle. At the same time, you have uh, this uh, Fridays for Future and Extinction Rebellion uh, movements that um, 
give can give some hope. So let's see. Uh, but you know, I mean, if you look at history, you know, from the suffragettes to the civil rights movement in the U.S., you know, uh, no progress ever came through. Um, you know, just uh, I mean, you know, every pro every progress came through. Um, bumps in the road, right? Because you have diverging parties with diverging interests. So let's see what, what the outcome becomes. I mean, where there is hope is that because as the effects of climate change become more visible, then people's sense of urgency would should continue to increase. But the problem is that from now, if people still continue to exceedingly focus on the headline ambitions, and not challenge the how. And it's it's in the how that you can, you know, claim to act while not acting in reality. So um, people need to be, you know, I wish people would challenge the how, look at the, you know, ask the tough questions and, and be be suspicious and, you know, not take anything for granted as a rule, you know, as a, as a rule of common sense, as being an active citizen with a brain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What's next for Green Finance Observatory, Frederic? Uh, we are working uh, on this new trend this is, that goes along the same line. You know, we have worked a lot on natural capital, this financialization of biodiversity, and now we're working increasingly on uh, human capital, uh, which is a financialization of human life, and that is being reframed as new, fluffy, allegedly uh, progressive and inclusive indicators, like inclusive wealth or well-being indicator, etc., so we're investigating that because this is a new trend. And um, and from what we see, these new indicators are not beyond growth at all. In fact, uh, they are recycling a lot of things to enable growth maximization to continue. And therefore, to you know, to not address, unfortunately, the climate emergency. Right. Very important work. How can people support Green Finance Observatory? Uh, well, people can uh, read, uh, if they're interested, they can read the material that we write uh, at first level and talk about it around, you know, in their in their circles or, or challenges. I mean, we're all happy to have conversation. It's important to have the conversation going. And then uh, we will soon have a, a, a button where people can donate if they want on our website, uh, which would be really helpful to help us to... Uh, to continue our work and possibly develop it a little bit more. Well, I wish you the very best of success with the fantastic work you're doing. And thank you very much. Thank you so much for your time today, Frederic. If you enjoyed this interview, we think you'll enjoy Cambridge geographer Mike Hume's new book, Climate Change. In Climate Change, Hume makes a powerful case that the power of climate change as an idea can only be grasped from a vantage point that embraces the social sciences, humanities and natural sciences. The book synthesizes Hume's career work on climate change. In 10 carefully crafted chapters, he presents climate change as an idea with a past, a present and a future and illustrates the different ways political, social and cultural movements in today's world seek to make sense of it and how they act accordingly. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. <laughs>